Hello, this is Calvin Driscoll, and I want to welcome you to the Real Leaders Podcast. This podcast is specifically designed to equip you with godly leadership skills that can be applied to all areas of your life. Throughout this podcast, my dad, Pastor Mark Driscoll, will be sitting down with some world-renowned pastors and ministry leaders to learn what it really means to be a real leader. For more content like this, we encourage you to visit realfaith.com. Now enjoy today's Real Leader Podcast. We looked at the three methods to obey God's principle to preach the word, expository, expository, topical, and topical preaching. What I want to do here, I want to look at expository preaching and then look at preaching the book of James. So let me just tell you this. This is super exciting for me. I love preaching and teaching through books of the Bible. My wife, Grace, she'll always ask me, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Whatever one I'm preaching, that's my favorite one. And I just get excited every time. And I'll just tell you this too. Our people don't just believe what we believe. They get excited about what we get excited about. If you get excited about people meeting Jesus, they're going to get excited about people meeting Jesus. If you get excited about babies being born, they're going to get excited about the nursery filling up. If you get excited about books of the Bible, they're going to get excited about books of the Bible. I'll be honest, I get excited about books of the Bible. That's my thing. So I just want to say how grateful I am that I get to share with you what I've given 25 years of my life too, and I'm 50, and Lord willing, I got 25 more to go preaching through books of the Bible. And so what I want to talk about first are general questions that uh, I use for preaching through a book of the Bible. This is just me sharing with you a couple of things. If they're helpful, praise be to God. Number one, I'm always looking for authorial intent. So who wrote it? Sometimes in the Bible, we don't know the... uh, the author of the book. It's not necessarily uh, stated, but if it is, it can be very helpful in the same way if we get a letter in the mail and we know who it's from and who it's to, it helps us to interpret the data therein. And so I'll give you some examples. Um, You start reading Galatians, you're like, why is Paul so angry, frustrated, upset at religious people? He's very stern, very intense. Well, because he was a self-righteous, proud, religious, demonic leader And that same spirit has come into the church. He says, even if an angel from heaven, meaning a demon shows up and preaches something different, don't receive them. And then he asks the question, who has bewitched you? Which is literally cast a spell, a demonic curse over the church in Galatia. The reason why he's so intense against religion, tradition, pride, um, is because it's demonic, because that was him. He was the most religious and demonic man of all before he was filled with the Holy Spirit. When you read, for example, um, Peter, why is Peter so intense on suffering and trial and hardship and not giving up and not giving in and hanging in there? And even if you've blown it, trying again, because that's his story. He, uh, he's a guy who denied Christ to a, a young girl as Jesus was going to be crucified, but Jesus forgave him and reinstated him. Uh, The Peter plan is different than the Judas plan. The Judas plan is you go do what you want to do and hang yourself. The Peter plan is I'm going to make you um, the leader of the disciples and and I'm going to let you write books of the Bible and I'm going to let you be a testimony of grace. So he blew it. He got it wrong and failed his test, but then Jesus made it right and let him take his test again. And what we read of Peter is at the end of his life, they came to him, history outside of the scripture records and says, you know, you already denied Christ once, do it again. Otherwise, we're going to crucify you upside down. And he said, you know what? You can't scare me. I saw Jesus die, rise, and return to heaven. He forgave and reinstated me. He defeated death. I'm not worthy to be crucified like Christ. If you want to hang me, hang me upside down. The story of Peter is, even if you got it wrong, Jesus can make it right. And then you get to take your test again. So that's the heart of First and Second Peter. Again, back to Paul. Why does Paul talk so much about grace? Because he was all about works and legalism and tradition and punishment. And then Jesus gave him grace. Why is he the guy in the New Testament that talks so much about forgiveness? Because he was forgiven so much. It was Stephen. As Paul was overseeing the murder, the martyrdom, the execution of Stephen, uh, it says in Acts that uh, the, the mob of angry men laid their cloaks at Paul's feet. He's the alpha male leading the pack of wolves. As they're throwing stones to stone Stephen, it says that Stephen prayed for him, just like Jesus prayed for us. 
And that he saw heaven open and he saw Jesus get off of his throne and give him a standing ovation for Stephen as he's dying. Because when we forgive as we've been forgiven, Jesus stands up and gives us an ovation from heaven. And Paul knew all of this. And then Jesus came down and answered Stephen's prayer and forgave Paul. So Paul is all about forgiveness and he's all about grace. Uh, Sometimes the authorial intent gives us not just the letter of the law and what is said, but the spirit of the law. I'll give you an example. Uh, Some years ago, I was preaching on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and his tone was really remarkable. My dear children, my beloved, uh, my little ones. It just sounds like a grandpa talking to his grandkids. Well, it's because at the age of writing, John is an elderly man. He started off as a young disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, Jesus' nearest and dearest best friend. But now as an older man, all the other disciples are dead, gone, martyred, passed. He's the last man standing. He is the grandfather of Christianity. He's seeing it go from one, two, three generations. And he is now the elder statesman. And he is one who has the father heart of God. And so he speaks like a loving grandpa over uh, the church family in the second and third century as he's on the edge of finishing the first century. And so, you know, as you get to know authorial intent, you get the, the heart of the person, the spirit of the person, not just the letter of what they have to say. And then look not only at the text, but the context. So there's the text of scripture that fits in the context of time and place. I'll give you an example. And all of this is just verbal processing, by the way. So I'll do the best I can. But there are four gospels. And at least as a new Christian, I was like, why does it have four biographies of Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one is written to a different primary audience. Matthew, primarily to Jewish people, starts with Jesus' genealogy is the fulfillment of Old Testament promise and prophecy. Mark, short, action-oriented, written to Romans. He did this, he did this, he did this. Roman Empire was very diverse. Lots of people's cultures, languages. They don't care what your background is. Are you purely Jewish or not? They could care less. They just want to know, did you get the job done? So Mark is all about action-oriented. Jesus got the job done. Doesn't even include his genealogy. Luke. Long, it's the only chronological gospel, and it has a genealogy, but it traces it back to Adam, not to Abraham, to show that Jesus is fully human because it's written largely to Gentiles who don't really care whether or not he's Jewish. John, on the other hand, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Logos is this great concept, it goes back to Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epimenides, and it's about this powerful force that brings reality into existence. And so some think that John takes this concept from Greek philosophy, applies it to Jesus Christ as the cosmic Christ who rules and reigns. And as a result, uh, John is written primarily to Greeks who are steeped in the categories of Greek thought and philosophy. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, they're all about the life and ministry and biography of Jesus, but the context uh, gives us a different hue, colored nuance for each one. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. So they share about 90% of, excuse me, about 60% of their content in common. Meanwhile, you go over to John and upwards of John's gospel, upwards of 90% is unique to John. In some ways, this would be like your local ABC, NBC, CBS news, and this would be like your Fox or CNN. It's a completely different account. All of that to say, um, not only does the text matter, but the context matters because things that are highlighted and things that are less highlighted are based upon the original intent, not only of the author, but the audience. And so this all works together. Another question I like to ask is, is there a hook for a book? So when I come to a book of the Bible, I'm looking for a hook and I'm wondering, what are the big themes and ideas that hang on that hook to bring a unifying center to the whole book? And so for example, I wrote down a few here, Um, Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk is an incredible little Old Testament book. Complete injustice. The world is falling apart. There's mayhem in the street. God's people are suffering. Habakkuk is like, God, what are you doing? Question. And then God answers. And then Habakkuk says, I don't like the answer. And then God's like, well, you're going to need to live with it. The righteous live by faith. It's a, it's a series of conversations and dialogues between 
Habakkuk and God, something that we've always felt like, God, where are you? Are you there? Do you care? What are you doing? What in the world is happening? Are you over all of this or not? And so the hook for the book is living by faith, even when you don't feel like it. Another example would be the book of Genesis. One of the great themes in Genesis is not just the fall, but it's a series of falls. So Adam and Eve fall. And then God raises up Noah and his family and he gives them an ark and they build an ark and then he grows grapes and then he makes wine and then he gets drunk and he passes out naked in his tent like somebody from West Texas. And next thing you know, it's a fall. And then he raises up Abraham and he gives away his wife twice in the promised land once. You're like, what? Uh, It's a series of falls. And so um, it sort of negates the myth of evolutionary progress. The storyline of Genesis does that we're good and getting better. It's like, actually we were perfect. And and now we keep driving around the same cul-de-sac and every generation just kind of makes the same mistakes and falls into the same sinful temptation. And unless Jesus, our savior comes and intercedes and delivers us from the cul-de-sac of human history, every generation just fires up the carnival music and replays the same script. That's the storyline of Genesis. I'll give you uh, another one. Uh, Ephesians and um, Colossians have a lot of shared material. And so, Uh, What you see though in both books is the first half is theological, the second half is very practical. So the first half is for the thought leaders, the second half is for the people leaders. And the first half is on things to know and the second half is on things to do. And so it's like your, um, your theology and then your life is like a left and a right hand and they work together. What you believe should shape how you behave. But before you know how to behave, you need to know what to believe. And so Colossians and Ephesians are built in a way to make God's people ambidextrous so that they're both theological and practical. Um, Galatians is a great book on what the gospel is not. Romans is a great book on what the gospel is. So the theme of Romans is... uh, that the gospel is the power of God. That's the theme of Romans. That's the hook for the book. Um, You go over to Galatians, it's what the gospel is not. And there's two ways to make a a portrait. One is to paint someone's picture. The other is to show their silhouette. When our kids were little, I just kind of think about this. um, In the school they were going to, at a certain grade, they would all cut out their silhouette and bring it home. Galatians is a silhouette. Romans is a painting. Romans paints for us what the gospel is. Galatians reveals to us what the gospel is by cutting it all out and leaving the darkness of religion and tradition uh, to leave the silhouette of the gospel. It's what the gospel is not. Um, Ecclesiastes is about the meaning of life. Hebel, Hebel, says the teacher. Everything is Hebel, depending upon what Hebrew translation you jump into. 38 or 39 times the book uses the word hebel. We tend to think of hebel as meaningless, which it can be, but sometimes that same uh, Hebrew word is used in the book of Psalms to mean breath or vapor. If, you, if you're out on a cold, crisp morning and you breathe out, you see your breath and then it's gone. What he's saying is life is like that. And the older you get, the more you understand this. Um, our oldest two kids are married, the two younger in high school, one is in college. Uh, I'm 50 years of age, so the band has taken the field already in my life, and I'm into the second half. And it happened so fast. Um, I'll get emotional just thinking about it. My oldest daughter, she just turned 24. She runs Real Faith Ministries for me. She's done an incredible job. Because of her leadership, we'll get Bible teaching out to about 100 million people this year. But I can still remember holding her. I can still remember uh, when she was a little girl, I'd cross my legs like this and I'd sit her on my lap and I'd hold her head and I'd read commentaries while she chewed on the end of the cap of my highlighter. And, uh, and now this little girl that I used to read the Bible over, she can preach the Bible in multiple languages and she's an international ministry leader and it happened so fast. That's the theme of Ecclesiastes, it's Hebel. Life is a vapor, it comes and goes so fast. So don't miss those sacred moments. Song of Solomon is about love and falling in love and being in love and about enjoying sexual intimacy. And it never mentions children. It's just about two becoming one flesh. Um, There's all these hooks in the books. And uh, in Exodus, it's about God creates Satan counterfeits. There's God and then Pharaoh who 
is the counterfeit God and there's God's servants and there's the counterfeit priests and there's Moses and then there's the counterfeit leaders and there's real miracles and counterfeit miracles and there's works of the Holy Spirit and there's works of the unholy spirit and God's people are supposed to be set free but Satan wants to make them slaves. The whole storyline for Exodus, spiritual warfare. God creates, Satan counterfeits. That's the whole storyline. Uh, this is where uh, I'm not a cessationist. I'm, I'm a charismatic. I don't even know who you preach through certain books of the Bible if you're a cessationist. Like the whole book of Exodus is about the demonic versus the Holy Spirit. Same thing in Daniel. It's about kingdom down versus culture up. He's in Babylon, but Babylon's not in him. That's the theme of Daniel. He's living in Israel, and then he gets taken captive into Babylon. And Babylon is not just a, an ancient culture. It's a demonic spirit that's at work in every generation through various cultures. That's why Babylon is mentioned again in the book of Revelation at the end. It's the spirit of Babylon. Spirit of Babylon wants God's people to be taken hostage. He wants them to be brainwashed. He wants them to be uh, sexually and gender confused. Daniel's actually castrated. Uh, so this whole transgenderism and all these issues we're dealing with, it's part of the spirit of Babylon and it was done to Daniel. He was brainwashed in university. They tried to change his name and designation to the pagan god Marduk and he never refers to himself by that because it doesn't matter what people put on you, you can't let it in you and what is in him is the spirit of God. Just like Joseph, the leaders in Babylon say the spirit of God lives in him. So the point is you can live in Babylon, but Babylon doesn't need to live in you. The spirit of God can live in you and you can live kingdom down. You don't have to live culture up. How do you be a missionary in a completely pagan demonic lost world, yet be faithful to God and see him supernaturally deliver you? So that's the hook for the book of Daniel, how to live kingdom down, not culture up, how to live in Babylon in the spirit. So the, the hard work when you're preaching through a book of the Bible, my friend, is figuring out the hook for the book. What was the author? What was the original audience? What's the original theme? What's the hook for the book? Once you get that set, this is where preaching a book of the Bible can be a lot more work on the front end, but then it's almost like a snowball rolling downhill. It picks up momentum over time. And the longer you're in the book, the easier it becomes and the more momentum you gain. Another question I like to ask is, is there a narrative arc? Is there a narrative arc? Is there a way that the storyline is architected and organized? And so, for example, uh, the book of Revelation, uh, the Western church sends, tends to see it as a book of eschatology and end times, which I believe it is. The Eastern church tends to also see it as a book of doxology and worship, which I believe it also is. So one way to look at Revelation and the architecting of the book is the, the heavenly scenes and the earthly scenes. So the unseen realm, in the scene realm. And what it's showing is here's what's going on on the earth and here's what's going on in the unseen realm. The unseen realm is the presence of God. It's where the divine beings and the departed saints, this would include angels and the sons of God and other divine beings, that there is a reality in a realm that exists that is unseen. Just as the world that we live in is seen, that world is just as real and it is seen by God and that the uh, separation between these two realms was not supposed to originally occur. And it wasn't until sin happened that the realms were separated. I believe in Genesis, when it says that God would meet with his people in Eden, that that was the divine council. That was the meeting place between heaven and earth. Uh, this is like the tabernacle or the temple or the body of Jesus or the presence of the Holy Spirit. God has always had a connecting point between the seen and the unseen realms. Um, it's called uh, the gateway in the Old Testament at Jacob's ladder. And so what we see here in Revelation is we see from one realm into the other, and it's flipping back and forth between the presence of God in the unseen realm and the presence of all that is happening on the earth. I'll give you one other example of a narrative arc um, and divine design for book. Uh, for example, uh, Luke and Acts are written by Dr. Luke. He's the primary contributor of the New Testament. It's a prequel and a sequel. Paul writes more books. Paul writes you know, 13, maybe 14 books of the Bible. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Luke just provides more content and it's chronological. So Luke is the uh, chronological history of Christ. Acts is the chronological history of Christians. And it is the spirit-filled life of Christ and Christians. That's why I don't even like calling it the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. I like to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
because the Holy Spirit, he descends on Jesus at his baptism to anoint and appoint him for spirit-filled life and ministry. And then Jesus dies and says, don't go do ministry yet. I will go up and the spirit will come down. And then the Holy Spirit descends on the Christians as he did Christ to anoint and appoint us to continue the spirit-filled life and ministry of Jesus. So Luke and Acts, the the hook for the book and the storyline is, Spirit-filled life of Christ and Christians. It's just, when you come to books of the Bible, once you get these big architecting design um, sequencing uh, mechanisms in your mind, now you're able to to put together the storyline and the hook for the book. I'll give you a couple other uh, examples. Um, I just finished the book of Romans. Use that as a final example. Chapter 1 through 11 is theological on our relationship with God. Chapter 12 through 16 is practical on our relationship with others. Chapter 1 through 11 is loved by the thought leaders and the theologians. 12 through 16 is loved by the people leaders and the movement leaders. And so what God is saying is your relationship with God should transform you and transform your relationship with others. That God works for you, in you, and through you. That's the storyline of the book of Romans. Well, that being said, uh, those are some of the big ideas. Now, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I'm going to encourage you to consider, I'd love to invite you to go on a journey with me and preach through a book of the Bible called James. I just uh, recently finished Romans and uh, I'm getting ready to jump into James. And so uh, Trinity Church in Scottsdale, where I lead with my wife, Grace, and our five kids, they all love and serve Jesus, and we're a ministry family. Uh, We're getting ready to celebrate our fifth birthday. Uh, Thank you, Pastor Robert, for being a founding overseer. And I'm going to start the book of James. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Prayerfully consider going through the book of James with me whenever you want. I will give you a 75-page introduction, overview, uh, minor commentary, and small group study guide that I've personally written. I'll give that to you for free. In addition, I'm going to give you a roughly 250-page academic research brief put together by a team of scholars and professors. I didn't do this. A bunch of guys with more degrees than Fahrenheit did it. And uh, I'm going to preach it in nine weeks. That's how my study guide is laid out that I give our people for sermon-based small groups we call life groups. The research brief is built on preaching James in 12 weeks, whichever one works, works for you. I'm giving you variety, tools, not rules. It has homiletical tips and summaries and quotes. In addition, at realfaith.com, I'll have all of my sermons in audio, video, also in transcript, and also daily devotions. All of this for free. And here's what I'm going to say. If you're willing to go through the book of James with me, and you have a specific question about James or how to preach it or a section of James, and you email me, mark at thetrinitychurch.com, I will have an answer for you, and it'll come from me. I love the Gateway Network so much. I don't know how many emails I'm going to get. There's not a lot I can do to serve, but if I could help you teach a book of the Bible, and you've got something where you're like, I want to run this by Mark. I'm not sure I can be helpful, but I sure want to try because I love you and I want to try and help. So mark at thetrinitychurch.com and the reply won't be from a team member. It'll be from me because I want to help you. So that being said, if you're willing to consider going through the book of James with me, uh, let me help you just sort of gear up and prepare to do so. So let me take everything that we've talked about and try and apply it to the book of James. Author is James. And just think about this for a moment. You're Jesus' little brother. That that just, how many of you have, you've got a brother or sister, you've got a sibling. Imagine you share a bunk bed and then he grows up to be Jesus. So James is his half-brother. They shared Mary as their mother. Of course, Jesus did not have an earthly father, but Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father and was James's biological father. Now, let me just set this up. This may blow your mind a little bit. Uh, I wrote a book called Spirit-Filled Jesus, where I talk a lot about Jesus' family, and I think it's one of the overlooked portions of Jesus' life. So his, Jesus comes from an extended family filled with the Spirit. His father, Zechariah, and his, or excuse me, his uh, probably aunt, um, Elizabeth, and his uncle, Zechariah, are filled with the Spirit. They're rural priests. Uh, they give birth to John the Baptizer, who is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. 
And when Elizabeth and Mary come together, John the baptizer is filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and he leaps for joy, worshiping in the presence of Jesus. One of the strongest arguments in all of the Bible for pro-life, um, the same word for Jesus and John in the womb is the same word for children outside of the womb because life is life and all life comes from God. Jesus, uh, Mother Mary is a spirit-filled worshiper. Jesus, Father Joseph is a spirit-filled man of God. Jesus has brothers and sisters. I was raised in Catholic church to believe that she was, Mary was semper virgo, ever virgin, which isn't the case. The Bible says they didn't consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. And then they had a normal, healthy marriage that resulted in Jesus having brothers and sisters. And prior to his resurrection, Jesus' family, understandably perhaps, thought that Jesus was not well. So there's a day when they come home, they come to bring him home rather. And they're like, and they're like, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here and they're here to bring you home. And he's like, yeah, no, those who are my family are those who do the will of God. Well, after Jesus rises from the dead, there's a huge transformation in his family. That's one of the strongest arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. Mary is listed in the book of Acts among the first members of the early church, present worshiping her son as God. Just think about that. Your devout Jewish mother worships you as God. That would take a resurrection. Now, Jesus' two brothers, James and Jude, go on to be powerful spirit-filled pastors who write books of the Bible bearing their name. What would it take for your brother to worship you as God? I, for me, I've got two brothers. I think I could probably convince them that I'm the devil, but I could not convince them that I'm the Lord. Jesus' brothers come forward and say, actually, he never did sin and he is God. And for a Jewish family to make this declaration, they knew that they were risking the flames of hell. James and Jude go forth to write books of the Bible bearing their name. James becomes one of the pillars of the early church, we are told, along with Peter. And then they go to put James to death. This is history outside of the Bible that I've got in the study guide that I'm giving you. It seems like they threw him off the temple. He didn't die. So then they ultimately stoned him to death. Church history outside of the Bible says that then James, his leadership position was a vacuum. So there was another brother of, James, of Jesus rather named Simon or Simeon, depending upon which historian you prefer, who then filled James's position. Well, if this is all true, his aunt, his uncle, his cousin, filled with the spirit, do ministry. His mom and his dad, filled with the spirit, do ministry. Jesus, of course, God, Savior, King in Christ does ministry. His two brothers write books of the Bible, become pastors. James, who writes this book, dies. And then his other brother, filled with the Spirit, steps up to do ministry. This is an incredible, I mean, this is, this is the greatest ministry family. This is the most powerhouse, spirit-filled family in the history of the world. And uh, man, uh, so as you get into James, it's just, it's looking at what could God have for not just you, but your whole family. And what I like to say at Trinity Church is we open our Bibles to learn, we open our lives to love so that lives and legacies are transformed. This is a legacy family. This is a legacy family. Well, the genre, it's New Testament wisdom literature. And so in the Old Testament, wisdom literature would be like Ecclesiastes, the meaning of life, a Song of Solomon, love and romance, Job, the problem of suffering and evil, um, Psalm, some would consider also being in that position of wisdom literature, how to live life in relationship with God through difficult, dark, and tumultuous times. In the New Testament, James is a wisdom literature book. And wisdom literature is more earthy. It's more practical. It's more poetic. It's more pithy. It's less about things to know, and it's more about things to do. Part of the reason why Protestants historically have not been so big on wisdom literature is because the two towering theological giants of the Protestant Reformation were in large part John Calvin and Martin Luther. What both held in common was prior to going into ministry, they were professionally academically trained as lawyers. Many people don't know this. So what they do, they look at the Bible primarily through the lens of law and gospel, not through the lens of wisdom and folly. The wisdom literature is about wisdom and folly. Uh, uh, the 
the Reformed tradition, the Protestant tradition is more law and gospel. So they would go from Moses to Paul, law to gospel. The result is that a lot of Bible teaching and expository Bible teaching in church history ignores the wisdom literature. This is why there's a lot written by the thought leaders on Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and the Ten Commandments and the Pentateuch, which is the, the book in five parts, the laws, the 613 laws of the Old Testament. They're, they're sort of unpacking all of that because that's what lawyers do. Where's the law? Where's the violation of the law? Where's Jesus fulfilling the law and giving grace to those of us who have fallen short of the law? The wisdom literature is totally different. It's very practical. It's about wisdom and folly. And because they used a law gospel paradigm, they kind of skipped the wisdom literature. So you're not gonna see Calvin, Luther, the Protestant reformers, the history of Protestantism doing much expositional work in the wisdom literature. They're big on Paul, they're not big on Solomon. They're big on Paul, they're not big on James. This would include Martin Luther and I deal with this in the study guide, but Martin Luther really struggled with this and, and he struggled with the book of James and he, he on one occasion called it, quote, an epistle of straw. Now there's a bit of a debate. Martin Luther was a little bit emotional and he was a big personality and sometimes he was ready fire aim with his thoughts, but he struggled to see how James could fit into the canon of the New Testament because it didn't fit his scholarly legal mind of law and gospel. Well, that is wisdom literature. And part of what he's dealing with is the original audience was lukewarm religious people. And so, um, you know, if you're in a place like downtown Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, where pretty much nobody grew up in church, nobody grew up learning Bible stories, you're just kind of starting at zero, it's still kind of unchurch, pre-church. Um, that's not the people James was dealing with. If you're in a place like Nashville or Dallas or a place where there is a great legacy and history of Christian belief and there's churches and Christian schools and you know, people are baptized maybe as a baby or they go to camp as a kid or they get their wedding is just expected to be in a church and funeral in a church. And maybe it's the remnants of what was Christendom, which was civil religion and kind of, you know, God and country and faith and family kind of stuff. Then that's the people that James is writing to. For generations, they've been going to church and hearing the Bible stories and they've grown lukewarm and they're a little indifferent. There are people like, yeah, I know what the Bible says and God loves me and I'm going to heaven, whatever. I don't really tithe, give, serve. I'm not really excited or motivated. Uh, I just kind of know all that. I'm a little bored with it and a little indifferent. I'm not an unbeliever. I'm just a lukewarm believer. That's kind of the audience to whom James is writing. They're religious people. And that being said, what he's trying to do, he's trying to turn up the thermostat on them. He's trying to heat up their enthusiasm for God and it's really important, this would be a key thought that comes to mind when you're preaching, you need to preach against rebellion and religion, okay? Jesus tells the story of the, uh, the rebellious son, that's the younger brother in the story of the prodigal, and the rebellious son, that's the older brother in the story of the prodigal. And the truth is most Christians lean toward the rebellious or the religious. You notice I put the rebellious on the left hand and the religious on the right hand. Pastor Mark, is that a political statement? Yes, it is. So what happens is we tend to lean rebellious or religious. And what happens is sometimes we're rebellious for a while and then we get really religious or we're really religious and then we get sick of the rules and traditions and we get really rebellious. And the key to the story of the prodigal is it's not about rebellion or religion. It's about relationship with the third son, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who forgives rebellious sinners and religious sinners. That's the moral of the story. And the problem is, if all you do is preach against rebellion, you're gonna get a bunch of religious people. That's what happened in Galatia. If all you do is preach against religion, you get a bunch of rebellious people. That's what happens in Corinth. And so what James is doing, he's preaching against um, religious people, as Paul in Galatians is preaching against religious people. And he's trying to move them to relationship with his brother and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to the book of James, 1,742 words, depending upon which English translation you prefer, 
you can read it in around-ish, a little bit under half an hour. Think about that. Even if you told your people, all right, the average commute is 20, 30 minutes. If you just listen to it read on version app every day, on your way to and from work while we're going through the book of James, you could just have it read to you on the way to work and on the way home. For the average person, they could listen to the book of James maybe 10 times a week. If you go through it in nine weeks, 90 times. If you go through it in 12 weeks, 120 times, just hearing the word of God. Just think of what that'll do for your people. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. They can read it for themselves. They can read it to themselves. It's not that long. And it allows people to just absorb James in a flow of thought and for the spirit of God to familiarize them with it. The hook for the book. So I'm going to make an application from some principles. The hook for the book, and there are some options, but my favorite would be faith works. Faith works. And uh, oftentimes we think of faith and works as separated and they're not separated. It's cause effect. It's reap, sow. It's God works for you, in you, and through you. Um, James says it this way. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And what James is saying is the words are great, but you better back it up with some deeds. We like to talk about walking your talk. That's what James is referring to. And what he does, I would say that's a good hook for the book, Faith Works. And the way I'm subdividing the book is how does your faith work in trial? You're in a hard season. Temptation, there's something you really struggle with. Anger, there's an injustice, a hurt, a frustration. Relationship, you're not getting along with someone. In a dry season where God seems far away and, and you wonder if he's still there for you. How does your faith work in a season of laziness where you just don't feel motivated? You're kind of indifferent or lukewarm yourself. How does your faith work when you're frustrated and you're fed up? You're just sick of it. You're like, you know what? It's just not working and I'm not sure it's worth it anymore. How does your faith work in conflict when you and someone are really not doing well? How does your faith work in planning your life? How does your faith work in your wealth? Showing forth that part of your worship is your stewardship. And then also in suffering, when, when you have physical or emotional or spiritual suffering, how does your faith work there? And then how does your faith work in ministry service? How do you take all the lessons that come through your faith walk and journey with the Lord in the spirit and have those work themselves out in ministering to others with the lessons you've learned, the mistakes you've made, and the uh, comfort you've received from Christ. And so faith works, and that's the hook for the book and all of these different ways and areas that faith works. Just let me give you a few themes in James. And then uh, in closing, I'll get into the big theological issue, faith versus works, because if you're going to join me in the book of James, you got to address and unpack that issue. Jesus is referred to as the Lord Christ, the object of our faith and the Lord of glory, along with the Almighty or the Lord of hosts, which is again, the unseen realm and the angelic and other divine beings, the coming King and the healer. So what's really interesting is James refers to Jesus from chapter one to five in big cosmic massive categories. This was his brother. They probably played wiffle ball together. They wrestled together. They went fishing together. They shared a bunk bed together. But now he sees his brother, not just in humility, but in glory. And he wants us to see his brother, not just as he was on earth, but as he is right now ruling and reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So it's a big cosmic Christ. It's a big Jesus. He also refers to godly people, God's people, as brothers and sisters repeatedly and beloved brothers, which is pretty interesting because James was the brother of Jesus. And you and I can think, gosh, that would be amazing. And it, we, we think it would be fun to be Jesus' brother, but just think about it for a moment. Every time something happened, it'd be your fault. It's not like you and Jesus are fighting and Mary and Joseph walk in. They're like, well, what happened? Jesus would be like, well, who... Whose fault do you think it is? I mean, Jesus never got a spank and he was perfect. It, it, it might be a little odd to be the little brother of the perfect big brother, but what James says is if you belong to Jesus, you're in God's family and Jesus is your big brother. So that's part of the portrait of James. He's like, Jesus is my big brother, but by faith, Jesus is your big brother and you're adopted into the family of God and we have the same heavenly father. 
the ungodly are called foolish, adulterers, sinners, and the rich. There's righteous rich and unrighteous rich. He's not talking about the righteous rich. He's talking about the unrighteous rich. Nonetheless, what he's distinguishing here is not necessarily law gospel, but wisdom folly. Those are the categories of wisdom literature. He often quotes the Old Testament because he's writing largely, I believe, to Jewish lukewarm believers and maybe some unbelievers who think that they're believers in any sort of religious subculture. There are people that do know the Lord and they're a little indifferent. There's people who think they know the Lord and they don't. And our churches are filled with these people. But he keeps quoting the Old Testament to show we're not creating a new religion. We're showing the fulfillment of old prophecy. So he mentions Abraham, Rahab, the prophets, Job and Elijah. And he quotes a lot of Jesus teaching. I can't even get into it all, but literally from beginning to end, when you jump into the study guide, he's quoting Jesus and echoing Jesus over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Now, if you're going to join me in preaching James, the big debate is James versus Paul. And uh, James seems to say that faith results in works. And Paul seems to say that faith has nothing to do with works. And the question is, how do you reconcile James and Paul? It's one of the big debates in the history of the Protestant Reformation. The great British pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, on one occasion, somebody came to him and they asked, how do you reconcile parts of the Bible that don't seem to say the same thing? And we've all had that. You're like, it says it here. And then I say, well, how do I reconcile this? And what Spurgeon said was, he said, I never have to reconcile friends. And I love that. If the Holy Spirit said it, then it is reconciled in the mind of God whether or not we are able to reconcile it in our mind. And we don't reconcile friends. If it's in the Bible, we assume that James and Paul are friends. They're both writing by the same Holy Spirit and they're part of the same canon of scripture. Let me explain the debate to you. Because again, when you pick a book of the Bible, it's gonna force you to deal with some things that you may have not otherwise wanted to deal with. And sometimes it'll raise theological issues that you need to unpack. It's like a knot in a shoe and you're like, I gotta untie that knot. This is the knot that needs to be untied in the book of James. So James on justification, being justified, declared righteous, made right with God. He says in James 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. James 2.20, do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? And then James 2.26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what James is saying is true faith results in works. Now, Paul on justification, Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What, so Paul seems to have a bright line. Faith works. Works don't save only faith. James seems to be saying, faith results in works. Paul says this in Romans 5.1, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. It's nothing you do, but through faith in Jesus Christ who does everything. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk as he does in Romans here in Galatians. Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So James and Paul, and it seems like they're saying different things. Now, historically, Protestants have tended to turn up the volume on Paul, turn down the volume on James. Catholics have tended to turn up the volume on James and down the volume on Paul. So within the Catholic tradition, which I was reared and raised, it is faith, but tradition, works, the papacy, the mediatorial role of the priest, confession, baptism as a sacrament, communion as the re-crucifying of Christ. There's all these religious works or traditions or elements that are added to pure faith in Christ. Over on the Protestant side, we've tended to dial up the volume on Paul. And this is largely because, as I said, of Calvin and Luther, but especially uh, Martin Luther, because he was Catholic, he was a monk, 
And he was literally destroying himself, wrecking his body, trying to pay God back for his sin. So he ate poor food. He slept on an uncomfortable bed. He destroyed his health. He spent hours in the confessional telling the priest of his sins to the point where they got sick of him. And they're like, you're wearing us out. Just give up already. But he took his sort of brilliant legal mind and he looked at the demands of the law. And he looked at Jesus' expectation that you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And it literally drove him mad. And what he realized is I can't do it. And it led him to desperation. And then he's studying Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. And he sees this in Galatians and Romans where Paul quotes it. And I'm paraphrasing Luther, but he basically says, it's like heaven opened to me. It's like all of us is like, oh, it's about what Jesus has done, not what I do. There is perfection and it's his performance, not mine. And so he lives that I die. He has condemnation so that I have salvation. He has separation so that I have reconciliation. He has wrath so that I receive grace. And this becomes justification by faith. What Martin Luther says is the doctrine upon which the church rises or falls. And so now we're into the, the history of our faith. Now, the question is, does James contradict Paul? The answer is no. I'll explain to you. In the first lecture, we looked at biblical theology versus systematic theology. Both are healthy and good. Systematic theologians will say, well, Paul and James both use the word faith. And what I would say is James and Paul may use the same word, but they may use it a little bit differently. And so rather than just using a systematic theology approach, how is the word faith used? Look at it from a biblical theological standpoint. When Paul uses the word faith in places like Galatians and Romans, he does so using it with a little different, different nuance and hue than James does in the book of James. So let me tell you what I am using for the book of James for my definition of faith. Faith is a Holy Spirit empowered, and I believe this is crucial. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is the presence of God. Faith is the power of God. Uh, faith is a Holy Spirit empowered internal devotion to God that produces an external devotion to God. So the internal devotion to God would be faith. The external devotion to God would be fruit. So ultimately the Holy Spirit does something in me, he brings faith, and then he does something through me, that would be fruit or works, to use those words synonymously. And, and, and let me say that sometimes faith is an internal action, and sometimes it's an external reaction to the internal action of the Holy Spirit. I'll give you an example. So the quintessential picture in the Bible of someone who lives by faith is Abraham. Faith for Abraham is not just belief in here, it's behavior out there. Faith is not just what he believes, it's how he behaves. Because God tells him, leave your father and your mother and your homeland and your job and your inheritance and everything you've ever known. And I'm not gonna tell you where you're going until it's time. Right now, you live by faith, not by sight. He trusts God in here and we can see because he obeys God out here. That sometimes obedience is the fruit of faith. It is the result of faith. Had Abraham only believed God but not moved, he would have not lived in faith because the command was to trust God by relocating and moving. Let me say it this way. Uh, God works and um, this is a, let me give you a big giant category. Um, God works for you, in you, and through you. Uh, this is the key to, I think, rightly understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. So God works for you. This is justification. God works in you. This is regeneration. God works through you. This is fruit or works or sanctification. And so God's work for you is Jesus lives without any sin. He lives the perfect life that we have not lived. 
He dies on the cross in our place for our sins, the substitutionary death we should die. And on the cross, Jesus takes our place and puts us in his place. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Jesus goes into our place and puts us in his place. Now we are the beloved and he is the one who pays the penalty in our place for our sins. So he's rejected so we can be adopted. He has wrath so we receive grace. He has separation so we can have reconciliation. He experiences damnation so we can have salvation. He tastes death so that we might receive life, that Jesus literally trades place with us. Now, that being said, that is God's work for you. That's how we are saved. Some people will say, you're not saved by works. Yes, you are. You're saved by the works of Jesus. That's the difference. Not your works, not mine. We don't contribute in any way. Jesus says on the cross, it is, you friends know the line, finished. The work is all done. Jesus works for you through his life, death, burial, resurrection. He then dies, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished, it's all done. Three days later, Jesus rises, returns into heaven. The work is finished. It's the finished work of Christ, and now we trust in the person work of Jesus. That's God's work for you. God's work in you is this, regeneration, or what the Bible calls being born again, or getting a new nature, becoming a new creation that God takes out the heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. And the main way that people know that God has done a work in them is he changes their desires. The person without the spirit cannot love and enjoy and desire the things of the spirit. I knew that God had done a work in me when I loved Jesus. I'd never loved him before. I hated sin. I never hated sin before. I really wanted to learn the Bible. Peter says, just like a baby gets born and really wants some milk, I got born again. I really wanted to feast on the word of God. Um, your desires change. This is the big difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The non-Christian only has the old desires. The Christian has the new desires. We all struggle with temptation in the flesh. But the Bible says that the flesh and the spirit are at war, keeping us from doing the things that you want to do, Paul tells the Galatians. You want to read the Bible. You want to pray. You want to be filled with the Spirit. You want to grow in holiness. You want to do ministry. You, you, you want to tell people about Jesus. If you have the Spirit of God, Jesus work for you. It does a, a, an absolutely cataclysmic, profound uh, rehardwiring at the deepest level of your being, everything in you. Now, you're not perfect, but you're new. And you're in a process of being perfected in the presence of Jesus. God's work in you. This is why I always like to tell our children, you don't have to read the Bible, you get to read the Bible. You don't have to pray, you get to pray. You don't have to serve God, you get to serve God. Like, these are not things that you don't wanna do that God's gonna make you do. These are things that the Holy Spirit gives you new desires and then gives you new power to accomplish those desires. So God works for you, God works in you, and then God works through you. Sanctification, your life begins to change. Fruit or works, and I believe these are somewhat synonymous words. When James talks about works and Jesus talks about a good tree bears good fruit, that is that ultimately the Holy Spirit is in you and the fruit of the Spirit comes out of you. God works through you. And so what happens is in various teams, tribes, and traditions of Christianity, they will focus on one of these three. So within the Reformed Protestant, sort of Luther, Calvin, law, gospel, justification, emphasis, God works for you. In the Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, God works in you. And through a lot of practical Christianity, it's God works through you. And this would be a lot of the seeker world and the practical Christianity and, and a lot of the um, do this, don't do that, steps to a better life. And those are people that are focusing on God's work through you. My charismatic and Pentecostal friends, of which I am one, we tend to focus a lot on God's work in you. And my reformed friends, of which I am one, God works for you. And, and what I'm saying is this, the fullness of the gospel is God works for you, in you, and through you. And I believe in... Um, Romans, 
Paul is looking a lot at God's work for you, justification, but he doesn't stop there. He's got a whole section. I mean, you read Romans 8. It's a lot about life in the spirit. He says, God has poured out his love into our hearts through the spirit whom he has given us just a few chapters prior to that. And then what he shows in chapters 12 through 16 is God's work through you. And so he talks about justification saved by faith, not by works. But then he talks about regeneration in the spirit and new life and joy and peace and power and pleasure in the spirit. And then even in Romans chapters 12 through 16 are about God's work through you, loving people, doing ministry, being discerning. He even talks in chapter 12 of Romans. I'm just sort of processing in the spirit. I just finished the book, but he's got a whole list of spiritual gifts. And this is God's work through you by the power and the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. So let me say this. You're not saved by your works, but you're saved to your works. You're saved by the works of Jesus for you, the works of the spirit in you and the work of God through you. You're not saved by your works, that's religion. You're saved to your works, that's relationship. So James is just looking at primarily God's work through you. Paul is looking at God's work for you. Both are also looking at God's work in you. Paul says it this way, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. A lot of my reformed friends will quote that. See, it's by grace, through faith, not works. But then read the next line, Ephesians 2.10. Where is workmanship created by Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them? What he says, Jesus does all the work for you. He does a work in you. And then he has good works ahead of you as he works through you. That's where it's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. It's work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. I'm just verbal processing, but if you know the Bible, I hope these categories make sense. And some will say, well, Paul or James. No, no, they're friends, not foes. They don't need to be reconciled. They're already in relationship. They're just emphasizing different aspects of this threefold process of salvation. Jesus says it this way. A good tree bears good fruit. The point is, we're not a good tree until Jesus makes us a new tree. Once God's work for us takes root in us, it bears fruit through us. A good tree bears good fruit. And what James is saying is he's like, there's no fruit. How do you know that you're a good tree if you have no fruit? How can you say you have the Holy Spirit if there's no fruit of the Spirit? Paul starts at the beginning, justification, James is looking at the fruit hanging on the tree or the lack thereof. And what he's asking is, if there is no fruit, is there faith? Because faith produces fruit. You can't say, I met Jesus, I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and nothing changed in my life, and nothing has happened. There is no such thing as a fruitless faith. There may be seasons of struggle to be sure, but a fruitless faith may be the lack of faith. And that is what James is calling into question. He's saying, look at your life. If, has anything changed? Is there anything different? Has God shown up? Are your desires different? Is your life different? Is Jesus the center? Are you excited about God? And if the answer to everything is no, the question then needs to be asked, are you saved or are you just religious? I'll close with a few thoughts. Uh, sometimes an external work is an evidence of an internal faith. Again, faith is a Holy Spirit internal devotion to God that produces external devotion or action to God. And so it's something that happens in here that then works itself out here. And sometimes it's through seeing the acts that we get witness to the internal faith. I'll give you an example. Uh, Grace and I, my wife, we just celebrated our 29th wedding anniversary. And on the day we got married, um, we trusted one another in our hearts. I knew that she loved the Lord and I loved the Lord and she loved me and I loved her and God was over it all and the Holy Spirit was in it all. But when we stood on the altar, held hands and made a covenant in the sight of God, being in God's presence with the witnesses of God's people, that moment was an external action 
that showed an internal conviction. I could say all day, uh, we're in covenant and I trust her, but showing up, putting a suit on, standing in front of God and family and friends, that external act showed an internal faith in God and in her. Give me another example. Uh, when our kids were little and the summer would come, uh, my kids loved to go swimming, so I would jump in the pool and when they were really little, you know, they would be scared to jump in the pool and I would just sit there like, I'm your dad, you could trust me, jump in the pool, jump in the pool, jump in the pool, jump in the pool. And they could, my kids would say, uh, I trust you, dad, I trust you, I trust you. Okay, well then jump. Sometimes you hear about the leap of faith. It's not a blind leap, it's, it's a leap into the hands of the father. And I tell them, I'm gonna catch you, you're gonna be okay, you can trust me, I'm your dad. Now, they would say that they trusted me, but I, I could see that they trusted me when they when they would make the leap into the pool and I'd catch them and save them. Sometimes faith is what you believe. Sometimes it's how you behave. Sometimes faith is your conviction internally. Sometimes it's your action externally. I love you. I thank you for an opportunity to verbal process a little bit with you. Um, would you prayerfully consider going through a book of the Bible with me? Um, I would just welcome you to go through the great book of James with me and learn about faith works and what is Christianity according to Jesus' little brother and what is it like to have Jesus be your big brother and what is it like to have God work for you, in you and through you and what is it like to see the fruit of the Spirit show up in your life through God's faith unleashed in and through your soul. And uh, if you'd be so kind as to join me uh, as I said, I've got around the 75-page study guide that I'm giving our small groups. You're welcome to that. Uh, if you want to use that, feel free. It's free. I'm not asking for anything. A uh, couple hundred-page research brief. It's free. If it helps you, praise God for that. And, uh, and lastly, um, if you want to follow along, go to realfaith.com. The transcripts, the audio, the video, and the five-day-a-week devotions will be there. And lastly, if you decide to go through the book of James with me, and you're like, I got a question I want to ask Mark. Just send it to mark at thetrinitychurch.com and I'm going to do my best to help you because I love you. And some of you have preached a book of the Bible, praise God. Some of you never have. And if you would give me the sacred honor of being the guy to introduce you to at least give it a shot and see what the Holy Spirit does, it's one of the most significant parts of my entire life and it's one of my favorite things to do. And it just brings me to tears to even think, um, that I've been given the honor to even talk about God's word um, and that you and I get this incredible opportunity to get up and say, thus saith the Lord. And so I'm just praying for you and your families and for the work of God for you and in you and through you. And thank you for your service to the Lord Jesus. Thank you for preaching the word. Thank you, Pastor Robert, for giving me the honor of participating. And uh, I think I'll just close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much that, oh, that you are our God. God, this, this world is so dark. It's so evil. It's so terrifying. It's so discouraging. It's so frustrating. Father, we just say thank you that overall is not just a God, but our God. And not just our God, but our Father who loves us as his sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming down so that we could be a visited people and planet. Thank you that all the work is done by you. Your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, your ascension, your ruling, your reigning, your returning in your kingdom. God, thank you for the Lord Jesus, the object of our faith, the Lord over our lives. And Holy Spirit, thank you that when Jesus went up, you didn't leave us as orphans, you came down and you bring the presence of our King and his kingdom to us. And uh, Lord, thank you that we get to preach the word. Thank you that we get to lead and feed the sheep. Thank you that we get to do first ministry to our spouses and children and that as a family, we can uh, serve the cause of Christ together. And uh, Lord, I just pray for a special anointing and blessing on these dear saints and their families and their preaching and teaching. God, it's a complex time for ministry leaders. It seems like Every decision we make, half the people are going to be upset about it, and it doesn't matter what decision we make. Everything's so divided and polarized. 
So I pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in their homes and in their families and in their churches and in their ministries. And God, I thank you that though I deserve hell, I get to be married to one of your daughters and I get to raise your grandkids. And despite sin and error and folly and mistakes I've made and things I regret and decisions I would like to undo, um, my eternal relationship with you is secure because of your grace. And I get to open the scriptures and talk about Jesus. And God, I certainly don't deserve that, but I'm certainly grateful for it. And God, I just pray for all of my brothers and sisters who give me the honor of helping them learn in this session, that you would encourage them, empower them, strengthen them, that they would not grow weary in doing good, and that they would just preach the word and preach the word and preach the word and preach the word in Jesus' good name. Amen. We hope today's message impacted you and they will continue to bless your life and legacy for generations to come. For more Real Leaders content, visit realfaith.com slash realleaders. And to sign up to get Real Leaders content straight to your inbox, visit realfaith.com slash sign up.